Welcome to the Babelry. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. As women. You were hard, but you foiled my plan. When you called my bluff, I got a decent hand. But is it good enough to win? I had it figured out until you dealt me in. And if you're not doing well, it must be because you're not managing your money very well. There's something wrong with you. That kind of thinking affected me when I was a divorced mom with three kids. I had $50 a month in child support and I still could not make my budget add up. I'm your host, Suki Wesling. We tend to talk about economics as if it's a science like physics or chemistry. You are told that the Fed is doing this or Congress has enacted that in order to benefit us, the everyday people who take part in our economy. But the truth is, economics is closer to a story we tell based on assumptions we make about what's important. Economists act as if the traditional plot we call the economy is made up of immutable elements, like there's a formula we can plug numbers into and get the answer. Shame of shames, I ended up having to go to the welfare office. I was working full time. I was going to school, but I couldn't make my budget work and I needed help and knew it just to feed my kids. I thought there was something terribly, terribly wrong with me. But no, there is nothing wrong with you if the formulas don't add up in your household. Today's guest is not an economist, but she did write a book about economics, inspired by her observation that the traditional economic stories we tell ourselves leave out the experiences and needs of over half of our population, women as well as other marginalized people. On The Babelry today, we'll explore what the economic realities for women are, where they come from, and some new economic stories that explain our money lives much more clearly. Money in the bank. Hi, I'm Ricky Gard Diamond, author of a book that was aimed at women and the economy. Got a nice review from Kirkus that said it was a smart, comprehensive economics guide with a feminist twist. And uh, I love that feminist twist, by which I think they meant the title, which was Screwdomics How the Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to make lasting change. The title is definitely eye-catching. That's, <laughs> that's the first thing I noticed. I, I, I just read an article by you on the Mid Magazine website, and I think that's what caught my attention. It's like, oh, this is a good piece. And I looked down, it's like, screwnomics, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's actually a word I had to invent because of the widely applied but unspoken economic theory that women should always work for less or even better for free. 
that seemed to be everywhere, but no one was talking about it openly. Yeah. And what I'd like to do is in this discussion, we're going to touch on a a variety of ways of looking at this. But I thought I'd start by playing devil's advocate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And the devil's advocate says, more women than ever are working and working full time. A larger share of mothers with children under 18 are working. Women slightly outnumber men in the college-educated workforce. And in graduate programs, women now outnumber men 1.6 to 1. So, Ricky, what the heck is the problem? (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people view it that way. But let's take a look at the wage gap. It continues to be universal, whatever the the industry or the uh, work area it's it's universal and it doesn't matter if it's a female dominated field or a male dominated field it is still a universal theory applied to women's wages it it doesn't look like that much when you're talking about 71 cents to uh, a man's dollar but uh, when you do the you know, multiply it out over a year's time, it it adds up, which is what Equal Pay Day is always about. There's research on all of this, of course, people can go look up the numbers. But one thing I read was what would happen to the U.S. GDP if we evened that gap? Yes. Which is astounding. (laughs) The numbers are just astounding, shocking. And the other is that, isn't it true that there's also a persistently larger wage gap between women-dominated professions and men-dominated professions, and even larger still, women of color-dominated possessions. All those baked-in striations are, are there very much in the, in the wage gap. Um, when you look at white Latino women, the gap between white men and white women is something like 80 cents to the dollar. But when you look at a Native American woman, it's 51 cents on a dollar. Black women are 64 cents on a dollar. Latinas are at 54 cents on a dollar. And so those baked in differences within each of the work areas are still very apparent. For instance, if you looked at the healthcare industry, where women are like in the 80% of the workforce, when you look at that field, you're going to find white women in the management positions and the, and the uh, lowest paid ranks are going to be filled by brown and black women. And that's just baked in across the economy. I hear a lot of talk about addressing, what do they call it, the post-colonialist economy Just dipping our toes lightly into the weeds of feminist economic theory, it's important to be clear about the origins of our legal system, which derives from legal concepts developed over hundreds of years. When we create new legal structures, such as economic systems, we build them on top of existing law and very seldom do a wholesale reconstruction of what came before. And what came before was not great for women. As we heard in the Babelry's previous episode, Invisible Women, 
American women were legally considered property until the mid and late 19th century. So women's labor in the home was a marriage benefit to a man, not valued labor provided by women. Like all the economic stories we tell, we've made a choice to continue to devalue labor that women exclusively provide. And there's no field of labor unique to people with uteruses other than pregnancy and birth. Ricky Gard Diamond points out that the gestation and birthing of babies is work. It's hard work that benefits our society, and yet we expect women to do it for free. Women are not at the front of people's minds when they think about the economy. They think we're doing okay, and yet they aren't thinking about, here's one little basic thing. Women have to take off time and often work part-time because of their other responsibilities as birth givers and mothers. And the ones that still have their roles defined as, you know, caring and organizing the home front. We don't, uh, I mean, the child care tax credit that was enabled during the COVID period showed us that By giving poor families regular check, a monthly check, raise kids out of poverty at, you know, something like have the poverty rate in the nation. And yet we couldn't afford to maintain that. So that Mm -hmm. homework that women do, that birthing work that women do, continues to be invisible in this economy. And in fact, we not only do this work for free, we pay for the privilege. In European countries, the average cost of giving birth is $10,000. And most of those costs are covered by national health insurance. Mm -hmm. Here in the United States, the average birth cost is around $30,000. So we pay for that privilege. I want to point out something that you said that was really interesting. You said that there's a universal theory behind women's experiences being included from the economy. And that's provocative. (laughs) Well, I don't know that it's an unspoken theory, Uh but I had to call it a theory because it's so widely applied. It's so universal. Mm -hmm. So I named it a theory. (laughs) I don't know that it's written anywhere except in Scronomics, but Uh But it it does seem to be. It does seem to be. And it's, it's clear from the work that women are still expected to do and are the work that is devalued because it's done by women and because it's concerned with, you know, caring, taking care of, maintaining relationships, um, making sure everybody has dinner and are happy at the dinner table, although we're not eating at the dinner table um, (sighs) as much as we used to. But nevertheless, um, women carry that, that weight to a greater degree. I mean, all of the statistics point to that. And that devaluation of what's really at the foundation of any economy is not only hurtful to women, but also to the whole economy. I think you said earlier that what would happen to the GDP if we just addressed that uh, women's pay gap, we'd see this enormous growth. And yet the past 20 years, we haven't seen that pay gap diminish. It's actually grown a little bit. Why is there this resistance to doing what seems to be a fairly simple thing? Mm -hmm. Now, young women are approaching equity in pay to a greater degree than was true for our generation. But 
it remains there and it's supported by statistics in every realm. One of the things that I know that we saw was what happened to the economic health of the country when poor families received some support during the pandemic for their children. Can you talk a little bit about why it would actually help our economy as a whole if if mothers were supported that way in general? It's important that we look at the work women do as birth givers. The USDA, the United States uh, Department of Agriculture, puts out an annual figure for what it costs to raise a child to age 18, not counting college costs. And it's up to about $750,000 per child. Women's wages, and in fact, parents' wages combined, have a difficult time paying for children. So it's not surprising that we have the high rate of poverty for kids in this country. So during COVID, we sent them a monthly check based on their work. And it cut the poverty rate for kids in our country about in half. And yet, in the same way that we resist equalizing women's pay, we decided that, oh, we can't afford that. We're not going to do that anymore. And wouldn't you know it, our child poverty rate is a little bit higher than it was before COVID, and it's right back where it was before. So the solution is staring us right in the face, and yet we choose not to fund that. Ricky Gard Diamond's book, Screwnomics, points out that economic theory is written to sound as if it's inevitable, but it's not. As a society, we make choices about what we value. I asked how women's experiences, both traditional and modern, are reflected in the economic picture presented by our government in its assessment of such numbers as the gross domestic product or the unemployment rate. They're just not in the picture anywhere. They're not a commercial activity. We only fund commercial activities where profits can be made. That's a deliberate result of our, we only create dollars from debt. If you look at the uh, dollar bill, which is signed by, you know, it has president's pictures on it and it has uh, the treasurer and the, lots of signatures here and but at the very top of the dollar bill, it says Federal Reserve note. Well, what is a note? A note is essentially a bill, which is why we call these dollar bills. They are created out of debt. Debt means profit, means the interest from loans that are made. That's what we choose to fund. Mm -hmm. So women having babies or forests growing trees don't count until you can cash them in on the labor market or cut them up into lumber. It seems to me that there are a number of ways that how we measure our economy doesn't really align with people's real experiences. One of the things that is happening in the economic picture right now is that economists are saying, we're getting a real handle on inflation. Things are looking good. But households are not saying that. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that misalignment? What's missing from what economists look at? Inflation is uh, one of the definitions in Scrunomics that I have right up front. And I think it's one of the hardest things to understand. It has something to do with that added on interest that commercial loans demand. The added on interest from issuing so many loans over time, very reliably moves the money up from people who don't have enough money to buy a house with cash. 
have to borrow it. It moves that money up to those who have enough money that they don't need that they can loan it to you. And so there is this general sweeping up of resources. For a long time, economics has been divorced from politics, largely the work of the uh, neoliberals who came into vogue when Reagan was, uh, these are Reaganomic uh, economists. Milton Friedman was the Nobel Prize winner for that era that changed a lot of the way that we thought about money and the public and private interests of the nation. John Maynard Keynes' thoughts about the economy were um, very different. And in a nutshell, he believed if you were in a financial crunch, the government needed to favor renters, not the landlords. When we're looking at our economic picture, as it's as if we're looking at a picture that's missing many of the colors. Yes. It's missing what is social and cultural and unprofitable that is engaged in simply for the joy of it, for the pleasure it gives us to live. Our work as citizens, our engagement as citizens, our curiosity and learning. There's a joy in learning what you didn't know before in your family and your children, in your neighborhood and your your local park, in all of the relationships that we have that increasingly were being isolated from because of, well, COVID was one of the causes, but also by this new digital world that we now are trying to traverse, which I'm just going to point out is somebody else's property, because Mm -hmm. I know this because they have a right to Every time I go to a a website or a software that I've been using in my digital life, which is really crucial to my own work, they have the right to rearrange the geography. Uh, That's something that I'm not in control of any longer. Ricky Gard Diamond acknowledges that although expectations in our culture have changed, the numbers have hardly budged. In households with a female and male adult couple, the women, even when they are the main breadwinner, provide more of the free labor, more childcare, more house cleaning, more grocery shopping, not to mention all the labor when it comes to birthing. In same-sex households, which show more equitable distribution of home tasks, a two-woman household is likely to be paying double the penalty for devalued labor outside the home, whereas a two-man household benefits. On top of that, Ricky points out, are the tasks that families can't hire someone to do, the emotional labor that is still more likely to be provided by mom or wife. So while men are making more money on average for the work they do outside the home, women are making less money not only for their paid work, but for the unvalued work that goes unnoticed in our assessments of the economy. I think those are really invaluable tasks, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing it. It absolutely is essential Mm -hmm. if we want to have a society that isn't at war with each other. It's an invaluable work, and that's usually what it's called, which is a way of giving mom a Mother's Day card, but not rewarding her for her very real work. In a way, the child tax credit was a way of rewarding parents' work. I've got wonderful, loving men in my family, and I'm happy to see that, to be able to count on that. 
but they'll tell you that that work isn't particularly valued in the larger world. Men who have paternity leave in their corporation very often choose not to take it because if you take it and you go take the full length of it, somehow that devalues you in the same way that women have been devalued. You are listening to The Babbley. Good morning! This is Mrs. Grousman for Home Economics One. Today's lesson is cooking for your family. We will learn how to cook chicken pot pie! Welcome back to The Babbley. Ricky Gard Diamond's education in economics started with an experience she initially viewed as shameful. One of the things that I loved about your book, Screwnomics, was as I was reading it, I thought, Ricky is doing with this book what I do with my podcast, which is instead of just presenting issues with the numbers and the problems and here are my solutions to it, my feeling is that what people really respond to is stories about other people, people's own stories, their own lives. And you interwove your own story into this book about economics. Right. So first, what led you to do that? Because my own story is so full of economic mistakes. <laughs> I learned a lot. And I wanted to share in an accessible way how important it is for more women to know about the nuts and bolts of the economy and why they're avoiding it and why all of us are really discouraged from thinking about the economy in that personal way. We're expected to think about money in that personal way, because that's our personal responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing well, it must be because you're not managing your money very well. There's something wrong with you. That kind of thinking affected me when I was a divorced mom with three kids, and I had $50 a month in child support, so extra money, and I still could not make my budget add up. And shame of shames, I ended up having to go to the welfare office. I was working full time. I was going to school, but I couldn't make my budget work and I needed help and knew it just to feed my kids. I thought there was something terribly, terribly wrong with me. When I went to the welfare office, I saw that I was so much more privileged than most of the women that I saw there who were Black women who had more children than I had, who weren't dressed in a, you know, a business suit. They didn't have earrings on. And I was just so aware of a peculiar situation that I felt myself to be in. I really didn't understand until I later moved from Michigan to Vermont, where I lived for the past 40 years, that there... Republican and Democratic women had formed a coalition and were beginning to look at 
this wage gap thing. And that's when I learned that I was making 51 cents on a man's dollar. And that was why my budget didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work even when I had welfare help. <laughs> but And that remains very true. In fact, it's even more true since the Clinton uh, welfare reform uh, move that has made welfare even more difficult than it was when I applied for it. But uh, I also learned that you know, we have these uh, mythologies about the uh, welfare queens who always are black, right? But most families that are on welfare are white, and most of them are, in fact, working, but they still can't make their budgets work. Now, why is that? Is that because they're all personally irresponsible with their money management? Or is there something more systemic going on? Another statistic that I, I came across just recently was that there are 30 million Americans who file, faithfully file their taxes with the IRS and cannot pay those taxes and have to go into some sort of negotiation with the IRS. 30 million Americans. Wow. So what is their problem? Are they bad money managers? I don't think so. There is something really systemic going on. And yeah, there are the latest statistics just out the other day was that the top 1% in this country now own as much wealth as the entire middle class of the United States. I mean, the numbers are in the trillions. Those are even uh, more difficult to think about, but those numbers are huge. Please, universe. I don't mean to sound demanding, but my mind is overworked. The fairies are tired. And haven't I done enough already? So can you just give me my man and my money now? Please, please, please. Just imagine if we had that 90% tax rate. <laughs> <laughs> we'd we'd be in a much better shape and maybe we could afford that child tax credit monthly check <laughs> if we did that. <laughs> Ricky Gard Diamond's book, Screwnomics, develops economic theory for women by building on the story of her own family. She's 77 now, so I asked her to speak about her own childhood and the values that she internalized from her mother. Well, a lot of screwnomics and the stories that I tell involve my mother because my mother and I had very, very different ideas about womanhood and about the economy and who was to blame and what should be done. <laughs> she was a Fox News follower. She had done very well, actually retired as a, she became an accountant back in the day before you had to have a CPA degree to do that. She learned on the job and she actually became a financial executive in a corporation and retired fairly comfortably. She valued money. She put it away faithfully. She made sure that her house was paid for, that uh, her children would inherit her life insurance money, and she took care of 
what she thought was uh, most essential and did a good job of it. Heartbreakingly, she died just before the 2008 crash happened. And what that did was suddenly the house that she had paid for was worth a third less Mm -hmm. on the market because of what had happened to the market through no fault of her own. She would have been so angry. I don't know that it would have changed her mind about how to succeed in the economy, but she would have been furious. And I think in a lot of ways, that was the kernel uh, at the heart of my writing this book to explain. I begin by explaining what happened in 2008, what women were involved or not involved, and telling their story and explaining to myself and to my mother what had happened. It's a long story, so I won't attempt to do that here. But Mm -hmm. yeah, all of this is very personal. And I'm anxious to see every woman and every man too, to claim their own personal story in relation to this economy. Because in the same way that the political is personal, the economic is personal. And as it turns out, the economic is also political because behind every political issue, you draw back the curtains and there are economic concerns about who gets to decide how much, you know, who, who, who gets the most. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of questions are always behind those political issues. And so talking more openly about that, I think, is essential mm-hmm. to our claiming our own collective uh, identity as Americans. So you have this this group called An Economy of Our Own Alliance. First, can you talk a little bit about what that is? When I was working on my book, I came across a number of really brilliant women who had been thinking much more seriously about the economy than, than I had been accidentally, and who had great solutions to all kinds of economic questions I was addressing. For instance, we were talking about the GDP earlier, and a woman named uh, Rianne Eisler, who's a Californian, actually, and may be familiar to some of your uh, older listeners uh, for her book, uh, The Chalice and the Blade. And she also has a book called The Real Wealth of Nations. And she's talking about including in measures beyond the GDP, those things that we have been talking about that are now not even on the table. Another example would be the wonderful woman Ila Bhatt in South India, who organized with a union, the self-employed women of uh, India, and imagined their organization not as a pyramid with a CEO at the top of the pinnacle, but as a growing, living banyan tree with all of these leaves and that are, were the individuals, and then all of these branches that were connected to these trunks, which banyan trees have more than one trunk, that go down to the earth. And I was just so struck by that whole notion of envisioning a living economy. Because I had discovered all of these women, um, many of them I invited to join me in forming a kind of alliance of feminist thinking about the economy. And that's what an economy of our own is. If you go to our website, uh, you'll see we have a marvelous advisory board that includes 
Rianne Eisler includes um, Mary Beth Gardam, who's with the Women, Money, and Democracy Committee of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, you'll see Katanya Hart, who is with the West Virginia NAACP and a national board member for the National Organization for Women. You'll see Carmen Rios, another Californian, who is a feminist rock star, digital wonder. I mean, she's the one that has helped so much with our webpage and our designs and our social media. An Economy of Our Own is a place where we bring together women around an economic issue because part of the problem with the economy is that there are so many pieces. How do you think about it? It's hard to think about it as a whole. You have to kind of take apart the pieces that matter most to you, that have the most personal relevance to you at a particular time. And so we have, up at this point, I think we've got about a dozen recorded events where we've gathered women experts together to talk, but not to lecture. We, we start out by asking them a really personal question. How on earth did you ever come to a place where you're thinking about investing, for instance? That was our most local, most recent event. Each of them tells their own personal story and why it matters to them, why it became important for them. And we've touched on other subjects like union organizing, mutual support. Mm-hmm. One of our wonderful conversationalists, Carolyn Shanaz Hossein, who is our, she was born in Brooklyn and uh, grew up in Philadelphia, and now she's at the University of Toronto and has written a number of books. She's the former president of the International Association for Feminist Economics, which is a a global organization, and has written a number of books about the southern hemisphere of the world, which has a much more humanized economy with lots of mutual support that we don't see here in the Northern Hemisphere as much. Mm-hmm. So the women there are have just been wonderful. It's been a real privilege for me to begin, even after finishing Screwnomics and discovering a number of these women and talking about the solutions they have to uh, expand that research and those conversations at an economy of our own has been so valuable to me mm-hmm. personally. And I, I think to Uh, a growing number of women who understand that what we're trying to do is make what is deliberately made complicated, understandable, and relevant to actual living lives. And most importantly, what we can do to change what's now a system that is essentially waged as war. It's a patriarchal structure that expects to create kings, and it does. But we want to see an economy waged as life, and we often say that. Ricky Gard Diamond's early adult life may have featured the humiliation of applying for public assistance, but her grandmothering years find her leading a women's economic group called An Economy of Our Own. When the traditional story of what counts in our economy is looked at through a feminine lens, a number of untraditional topics come into focus. I notice that a lot of the topics that you cover are are definitely unusual for an economic forum. You had one on economic trauma and another one on community well-being. Why do you think these topics are of particular interest to women and to that it's women economists bringing them up? I 
suppose it is the baked in values of women expected to care who find joy and pleasure in caring and do it for free. (laughs) (laughs) Do it for free and are devalued because of it. Not so long ago, the idea of there being combining the words feminism and economics together was essentially laughable. But I think that's where the real solutions lie, is including the planet, all the life of the planet, and the life that women are charged in our society, charged with taking care of, that are devalued because they're doing that work, needs to be lifted up. Uh, Rianne Eisler has said we need to put things right side up. It's like it's all backwards. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful cake diagram that Hazel Henderson and one of the wonderful women I discovered in my research. It was the first economic graph that really made sense to me. And it was this big cake that had uh, several layers. The bottom layer she named the nature layer. On top of that was a layer she called the love layer. Then there was this thin filling that was called the illegal layer. Then there was the nonprofit layer. And then there was the commercial layer up top. And on that was the frosting, which you could think of as the 1% there, the frosting all mm-hmm. on top. And some, some of that cake is monetized, but a great deal of that cake is not monetized. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the discussion is, well, do we want to monetize it? Do we want to make everything commercial? There are those people on Wall Street that are now uh, talking about buying natural assets, actually purchasing and making a commodity the biological functions of clean water or healthy soil. Do we want that? Or do we want to be innovative in other ways that look more radically at the whole notion of, I'm talking for myself now, lately I've been thinking about this whole notion of profit and whether we see this in nature, do we see exchanges being anything but equal back and forth from one form to another? There are those people who are working on nuclear fission who believe they can create this extra energy, but I don't see it in the world around me. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering in what ways we can redefine profit. Is it only money? Or can we, as some investors are doing now, can we also think of wealth as invested in our communities and their well-being and in the sustainability of the businesses that we have in place? And are they good for the planet and good for people? So that kind of triple bottom line, profit, people, planet, I think we, we need to look at that more closely and challenge what is now only something called shareholder value. That is the utmost good in the current economy that has given us money kings. Yeah.
When the Babelry returns, if the situation is so bad, what are women doing to change it? really struck when perusing the videos of meetings available on an Economy of Our Own's website that these women are sloughing off a lifetime of training in the belief that economics is a dry subject. I remember being told that over and over, and I still see references to it in articles about economic issues. But if dry means that it doesn't connect with us on an emotional level, this is clearly untrue. The reality of economics connects with every facet of our lives. It's simply the way we've chosen to present economics that comes off as less than personal. These female economists, however, are making it personal, and they're doing it in a touchy-feely personal way that comes off as nothing short of radical. And it occurs to me that the really radical thing here is that for as long as men defined economics as a dry matter of numbers and widgets, that was actually the radical thing. To take the humanity out of economic theory, to take half of the human race right out of it by defining their work as not worth quantifying, that's the radical choice. Because let's face it. The numbers tell us that the unquantified work traditionally done by women at home is deeply entwined with our economic health. Ricky mentioned the 2021 child tax credit, which sent up to $3,600 per child to households. That money was literally the first time that parents, and again, let's stress that this work is still mostly done by women, were paid for work done in their homes. The numbers showed us exactly what happens when families have enough money. Fewer children went to school hungry. Fewer children came home to an empty, cold apartment. All that money cycled into our economy and bolstered a huge burst of economic activity. And following the money further down the road, we also know that well-fed, cared-for children have fewer acute health care and mental health care needs. They do better in school. They are less likely to turn to crime. They are more likely to continue their education. And all the numbers tell us that all of those things are good for the economy. The bottom line is that the touchy-feely stuff has a direct effect on the economic life of our country. Those old dudes and their dry numbers were trying to ignore over half of the work that built this country. The unpaid labor provided by women and the low and unpaid labor provided by people of color. The way these women are approaching economics is less radical than simply obvious, sensible, and realistic. Our system of not valuing women's work equal to men's costs this country money. Lots of it. One of the Scandinavian countries that are much more forward thinking about these issues than we are, they give like a full year's parental leave for bonding with your baby. And the mother cannot get her leave taken unless her partner also takes his. Ricky Gard Diamond's organization, An Economy of Our Own, declares its purpose this way. 
Today's economy is the product of 2,400 years of male-only discourse. It generally omits, misnames, or discounts women's essential production, passionate attention, and ideas. None of our present financial systems and tools, banks, corporations, coins and currency, stocks and bonds, or basic rules of their exchange and trade were invented by women. Females continue to be blocked from owning this economy or its dollars. In the last part of our discussion, we'll address some of the solutions that are being enacted today to nudge our economy in ways that benefit all people. We start with the idea of mutual aid. This is the economy based on relationships. There's a wonderful organization called the Banker Ladies, which is one of Carolyn's projects. African immigrants to Canada were often discriminated against by traditional banks. And so they would form mutual aid groups based on relationship where people chip in a certain amount of money regularly, and then that money is available to members of that group. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an informal banking system. Mm -hmm. It can also be an exchange of services. There are things called time banks that also enable people to exchange work with one another. I took advantage of uh, a time bank in recent years when I had a, a leak in my roof and I had to cut out a piece of the drywall. A lovely older woman came over to show me how that was done and she helped me with the whole project. Uh, in exchange, I didn't give her anything. She did this willingly because she had offered her services through the time bank. And I had other services that were available at the time bank that were available to all the members of that time bank. So that's another way that people provide mutual support. Mm -hmm. There are things like local soup kitchens. It's the holiday time, and I'll bet uh, your town, your local churches, your maybe your YWCA or other organizations like that are offering um, meals. Public banking is something that I was only vaguely aware of before my conversation with Ricky Gard Diamond. But once I looked it up, it's one of those ideas that illustrate best her assertion that our economic system is not inevitable. Many choices led us to the economic story that depicts the banking industry as paying handsome salaries to a few rather than serving the widest variety of needs. Even our credit unions, originally envisioned as focusing on service rather than profit, charge what economists call junk fees. Things like that service fee that you pay at the ATM, even though maintaining an ATM is saving the bank huge amounts of money. Unless you subscribe to the theory that this is yet another step in the liberal left slide toward communism, even publications like the American Conservative have come out in favor of the idea. Public banking illustrates another part of the argument that the women of an economy of her own focus on. That banking, just like every other facet of our society, from policing to standard cabinet heights, was designed by and for white men. The, the next one I wanted to ask about is public banking. What's that? I learned about this by reading a wonderful book by Ellen Brown. It's based on The Wizard of Oz uh, and Dorothy. And uh, it explained a great deal about how our money is produced commercially and for commercial purposes alone and how using that same system that is in existence now to create local banks, state banks, 
in the United States, there's one example of public banking, and that is in North Dakota, a very red state. But 100 years ago, farmers and other citizens got together and created a state bank, a bank owned by the state, operated by the state for social purposes. They were the first bank in the nation to create student loans for college and student loan forgiveness as well. But they also funded very small businesses, which often have a hard time getting finance from larger banks, and also farmers. They have been operating for 100 years with a social purpose, answering to the public for their activities, being much more transparent, and actually returning profits after 100 years to the people, reducing taxes in in that state because it's the state that owns the bank. Mm -hmm. So this idea is one that is in operation in many places uh, around the world. Uh, Germany and Japan both have great examples of public banking, publicly owned banking for public purposes. But here in the United States, we only have this one bank. And most states and big cities have their money stored at Wall Street. There is a movement now across the country where people are organizing to create a network of public banks, California being one of the leaders in that movement. They have passed legislation that makes a public bank possible. And I believe it's the East Bay group that is probably farthest along in creating a bank by joining the municipal funds of three cities in that area that have agreed to work together to create this bank that'll make municipal financing more affordable, that will make local small businesses a priority. Uh, Women entrepreneurs are often a part of that community that gets ignored by the larger banks and fills in a gap that now exists that that can really make a difference. So we're, we're very much behind that effort and have even had a couple of what we call learning circles, which are a little more intense educational experience uh, focused on a, a single issue. Worker ownership is also an important solution. Even if you think that's too much for your corporation, having more representatives on the boards of your business is another route, way to empower labor so that it's not the power dynamic is not so lopsided. In Germany, for instance, it's actually required that every corporation have at least one third of their board representing uh, workers. That would be a big change. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and certainly the push to get more women and other less represented communities on boards has been somewhat successful. And one would hope that that changes the culture of a business at least a bit. Yes. Another thing that you mentioned in some of the workshops that you've done is is labor organizing. And it occurs to me that women are overrepresented in service industries and service industries have been where the bulk of new labor organizing has been happening recently. Yes, it is exciting to see that. The history of feminism started with women exchanging stories and finding common themes. 
Ricky Gard Diamond's experiences are her own, but they are not isolated from the experiences of other women. As a feminist writer, she saw echoes of her experiences in the stories she heard about women whose life experiences were otherwise very unlike hers. So you've done all this work and you didn't mention, but you do mention in your book that, that it's sort of interesting you ended up here because you're not an economist. That's right. How do you feel, you know, looking at your life's trajectory from from welfare mom, I'm saying that in big air quotes. No, no, it's <laughs> to, true. It's to, true. Well, but, you know, the whole <laughs> image of the welfare mom trying, you know, not yeah. working, just choosing to be lazy. Cause, you're right. Anyway, from welfare mom to to running an economic organization for women, how do you see that life trajectory? Talk a little bit about what it feels like to have ended up here. Well, I guess like anyone, I say, how the heck did I get here? And it's a long, convoluted story, but I think I'm here because I still have compassion for what I saw in that welfare office. And even within that office, the layers of complexity, privilege, layers of privilege that were evident, you know? One of the mainstays of our organization and an economy of our own, and in my, in my own research, is including diverse voices. Because in a way, I think I, I not only want women to claim their own economic story, but their own economic expertise, because if you're alive in this country, you've been using it. And uh, it hasn't always matched up with what the Dow is saying about the economy. But I think when women get together and, and, and talk about what's going on in their lives and understand that what is so difficult to understand is actually deliberate and not all that complicated when you really look at it closely is important. This conversation offers a lot of food for thought. It's clear that when you scratch beneath the surface of the good news, there's still a lot of work to be done. The numbers of women in higher education are great, but in many fields, especially the sciences, those numbers mask the inequities that still exist. In the Babelrys interview last year, women scientists talked about the large amount of emotional overhead that costs them time and focus, everything from choosing clothing that will telegraph the right message to having to assert themselves to get the necessary physical space in classrooms and labs. In a forthcoming episode on female herpetologists, you'll hear women talk about how they literally can't turn to their mentors for certain types of mentoring. Ricky makes it clear that until pay inequity is dealt with, women's economic equality is an intractable, immovable problem. The key seems to be removing barriers, but many of those barriers were put into place by previous generations, and they still largely go unnoticed at this point. We're running an economy designed for a well-off, white, Victorian family with a working father at the head and homemaker providing free labor at home. That world is largely past, yet the ways we measure our economic health were designed in and for that world. Ricky and I only touched on some of the solutions that the women of An Economy of Our Own speak about, so I highly recommend you check out the links on babblery.com for more. It was a lousy deal on both our parts. You bet me a body and I raised you a heart, but you for my plan. You called my bluff, I got a decent hand But is it good enough to win? I had it figured out until you dealt me in 
Cause I'd set my sights on a one night stand Had an appetite for a handsome man And you had all the clout of a seasoned flirt I said, hey, cut it out before someone gets hurt I knew a night is not enough to get enough for you Thanks to Ricky Gard Diamond, author of Screwnomics, for sharing her life and insights about women and the economy. A list of resources mentioned can be found on the episode page on the Babelry. And for more information, visit aneconomyofourown.org. The song Money in the Bank by Carsey Blanton and Home Economics by Mrs. Grossman and Monty are from freemusicarchive.org. Other sounds are from freesound.org. Like this, never want enough to fill my tank. But that first kiss was money in the bank. Oh, money in the bank. Come and get in bed. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Babelry. Subscribe to The Babelry on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babelry is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California.